Good morning, everyone. Guys, good to see you. Today is the last day of questions you never thought you could ask in church. I have got a volume today that I have to get through because the questions this year came in like a flood. So the way that we're going to proceed is I want to try to do justice to the questions that have been asked over the last two weeks but that I haven't gotten to yet. And then if any live text in comes and time allows, we'll hit it at the end. So as always, if you do have questions, here's the number. one 815 now, over the last two weeks, we had a series, a collection of questions that really seemed to delve into what it means for fellowship of faith as our congregation grows from a worship of attendance of about 250 to 500, and it's a trajectory that we've seen ourselves on. And I know with that comes sometimes not only questions, but fears or uncertainties of what that means for our church here, but also excitement and, 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 and vision of what it can be. So let me hit that collection first today. And here was the first one. Doesn't adding people to our numbers mean we won't know people? Yes. Yes, it does. But I'll tell you this. Do you know everyone who comes to Fellowship of Faith right now? There are 780 people in our database that consider themselves regular. Can you list them all? My suspicion is what we fear in not knowing each other as a church really won't be that much different at the next level. And the reason why is we are already at a level that if we are going to do deep relationship with each other, casual Sunday morning meetings simply isn't enough. Good question. There was a collection that came in. You can see the theme running through here. Does 500 mean more services or expanding the building? If we have to add services to accommodate, will it be Saturday or midweek? And if we go to a third, obviously Sunday, Saturday, or midweek. Right now, all options are on the table because right now, 500 people can't fit in here any given Sunday morning. This wall, believe it or not, is designed to expand. And Architects have talked to us about the possibility of that. The wall behind you is, decide, is designed to expand, and there's even other insights that retractable doors could be put in to make it wider. But the reality is that kind of stuff is expensive, and here at FOF, we hate debt. So the probable course of action would be to add a third service. Now, right now, we're not at that point, and we're going to shove all you guys in a two as much as we can without being ridiculous first, all right? But when the time comes, my suspicion, don't quote me, my suspicion is that we would go to three on Sunday morning because I don't want to give up my Saturday nights, all right? <laughs> will our focus, I love this one, will our focus be non-churched or stealing from other churches? <laughs> Stealing all the way. Next question. 
our focus always has, always is, and always will be on those who are not finding a home in another church body. We are never going to stand at the door and ask people, do you go to another church before we let them in? But we're not here to plunder or rob other churches. We're not here to say that we're better because fellowship of faith isn't for everyone. And we need hundreds of local churches satelliting around our campus. But for those who aren't connecting elsewhere, these are the people that we're looking to reach. How is 500 better? What effect do you see on the church as a whole if we reach the goal of 500 members? Point of clarification, the goal is not 500 members. The goal is 500 in regular attendance. We actually did an interesting study on this. We looked at a six-week spread to see how many unique people come into Fellowship of Faith over six weeks. Meaning, not every Sunday is going to show every single person coming who considers themselves connected to FOF. Are you with me on this? Right now, we are well over 500 people who are coming here, different people, over a six-week period of time. So in many ways, we're already into this range. But how is 500 better? I prefer the word different. There's pros and cons to being a large church, a medium-sized church, and a small church. But I think some of the things that you would see different at a church of 500 rather than 250 is simply this. More programs, more ministry, more options. The critical mass and the volume of people just allows us to do some things that we can't sustain right now. I'll give you a case in point. We would love to offer things here at Fellowship of Faith like divorce care, like grief recovery, like cancer support groups, like caregiver care groups, and things like that. The problem is the critical mass just isn't there. And while there's two people that would show up and thrive on it, have you ever showed up to something it's like you, someone else, and the leader? Kind of weird, right? More people means more programs. More programs mean more people can be reached in their own unique ways. So that's how I see 500 affecting us. Yes. Will FOF be asking us to give more to make 500 happen? Are you asking me to give more to accommodate more? And I love the bottom one. Does that mean I will have to spend five hours here instead of three as a volunteer? Off the bat, 250 or five, we are always asking you to give more. All joking aside, because we think Jesus is always asking us to give more. More. If we are truly pursuing love your neighbor as yourself, that is always going to be a journey of discovering what it means to give more and more of ourselves to Christ every single day. The numbers don't affect that. Our hope is that you're on that journey either way. Now, for the volunteers here who are freaking out, it'll look in different ways. For those of you who are ushers, if we did three services on Sunday mornings, it would probably mean ushering at one service instead of all three. And there was great rejoicing, right? <laughs> if you're a musician, having split worship bands up here just gets difficult. 
on a Sunday morning. So yeah, it would probably be a longer Sunday morning for you, but maybe scheduled less. Make no mistake, as we grow and transition, it means change, just like it does in our personal lives, in our marriages, in our relationships with our kids. But these are good things that we get to explore together. And as long as we keep open communication, right, we'll navigate it. How about this? What is the status of the Red House property? There's a piece of property on Crystal Lake Road that's been for sale, and uh, FOF has expressed some interest in. The owner is still um, listing it, but right now he's asking more than it's worth to us, but he knows that we are interested, so if price should drop, then maybe discussions would open again. Why 500? Why not 750? I love the way you think. What does a church of 500 look like to an average attender at FOF? What does it mean for me? What we hope it looks like for you and what we hope it means for you is finding a body of people that you can connect with, that you can worship with on Sunday morning to experience what that means to come in the presence of God with others and worship your guts out, to connect in smaller settings with them, praying growing, learning, wrestling with the intersection of God and life, discovering your gifts, your callings, your vocations, what God is stirring in your life, learning how to release it, learning how to be his ambassador, learning how to be a disciple maker, growing in your own sense of passion, devotion, and obedience to him. What it looks like for the average attender is what it looks like now. It's the same call, the same vision, the same response to Jesus in our life. Where will we get all the chairs from? <laughs> now the plan is this. The plan is if we add a third service to use the exact same chairs that you're sitting in right now, all right? But if we were in time to expand we would order more chairs. Simple enough. Okay, the next run that we're gonna get through comes into the wider array of questions that came in over the last two weeks about God, Christianity, the Bible, and other things and how that relates maybe to fellowship of faith. So let's jump on in. Someone had texted a couple of weeks ago if the Garden of Eden was God's perfect creation, and we are to use that as a reference for what eternal life will be like, of course, before Adam and Eve sinned, why did God allow Adam to feel loneliness? You following the logic of this? If Eden was perfect, why was something, quote, imperfect there? And it's simple. Eden was not the end of the story. I think most people tend to think of the Garden of Eden as though God created his perfect creation and said, it's done. It's done, leave it alone, keep it fixed, because this is all it ever should be and all I ever want it to be. That is not the biblical picture of Eden. Read Genesis 1 and 2. 
And you'll find that when God created Eden, while creating it very good and as an idealistic blueprint of what he wanted, it was the beginning. Eden was always supposed to develop, to grow, to stretch out as God put it in the hands of Adam and Eve and his people. Take this and make it better. How cool, crazy, and frightening is it to think that God takes his creation that he loves, puts it in your hands, and says, make it better. I don't know if I like that, but that's what's going on. And you see that in the very beginning with Adam. It ain't finished yet. There's more to come. How is it that Jesus came in the fullness of time? Why then and not some time later? Let me read the passage that this is uh, that this is referring to. It comes out of Galatians chapter 4. And in it, Paul writes this. Bear with me. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So what does it mean that when it says the time had fully come, what do you mean the time had fully come? A lot of people in looking at the time Jesus was born have speculated that, well, there was a one world government with safe roads and safe passage and a universal language called Greek that was a language of the empire and commerce and that the mechanisms were in place for the gospel to spread easily and crucifixion was practiced widely in the day so Jesus' death is all these kinds of things. Interesting to think about, but I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. I think Paul is doing here what he does elsewhere, and he's thinking apocalyptically, that God has a secret wisdom, God has a plan, and in God's own timing, things were ready to happen. It's a way, I think, that Paul is getting at the idea that Jesus being born wasn't an accident. It wasn't a, how do I take advantage of that situation? This was part of God's cosmic plan unfolding how he wanted it to unfold. Paul just happens to word it this way. How about this? Someone asked, referring to me, who answers your questions and doubts when you can't discern them from the Bible or other sources? Do you have any fear and doubt in your walk with Jesus? Yeah, yeah, to hit the last question first. You better believe it. And my experiences, I think pastors and church leaders often have more fear and doubts than the people they often minister to. Who answers my questions and doubts when I can't discern them from the Bible and other sources? What I've had to learn and hopefully it encourages you as well, is I have yet to find anyone who is a one-stop shop. There is not a single person in this world who is the repository of all wisdom and guidance that I can turn to for every single question and doubt that comes my way. 
not even Tina. <laughs> My wife Tina is a, uh, a right-hand support like I can't even imagine. But sometimes there's things that's just not appropriate to bring her way. Sometimes there's questions I have that she can encourage me in, but can't give me the guidance I'm looking for. And so what I've found is I need community. Maybe you put it this way, a network of people. It's just different language for the same thing. Various believers, some in this church, some not a part of this church, who I can talk to and pray with and bend their ear and know that they'll shoot me straight and tell me even the things I don't want to hear, but I know that they have my good in mind, and I encourage you, if you don't have that, find that network of people in your own life. If you're here and you're new today, can I just say, welcome to Fellowship of Faith. Give the people here a try. I found it's vital in those times when the questions and doubts come crashing in. Here was one. God answers all prayers. I pray for the eternal salvation of my family. How do I know he answered me? Will I ever know in my life? How do you know that he answered you? Because he says he answers you. He promises he answers you. If you hold the Bible to be in any way reliable, you can't get around this point. And so what it becomes is this act of faith going, Lord, you promised you would answer, and I'm trusting you to it. But remember that when God answers, it doesn't always mean yes. Let me encourage you. If your heart is breaking for family members that you want to know or that you want to see come to have and know eternal salvation, God's heart is breaking for that infinitely more. Think about the fact that the cosmic power of the universe is more invested in your family's life than you are. And you may never see the fruit of that in your lifetime. That's simply where God asks you to trust him. To say, be my witness, show my love, do the work and the job I've given you, but trust the results to me and know that my heart for them is bigger than yours. How much faith is enough for salvation? You know, I, I would make the case that the Bible is not really interested in asking that question. Jesus never approaches a relationship with him under the guise of how much is enough. Do you go into a marriage going, really, how much do I got to do here? And if you are, pre-marriage counseling, contact me, all right? It misses the point in the spirit of it, doesn't it? To be asking questions, how much is enough? Because salvation in the biblical mindset is the total experience of what it means to be in deep relationship with God for eternity. The question is not how much is enough, but how much does God give? How much can we experience? How much can it grow together? 
But if you're sitting here today having fear or doubt in your heart going, do I have salvation? Do I have what will happen at judgment? You know, those kinds of things. I love the parable of Jesus. If you have faith like a mustard seed. You ever see mustard seed? If you have faith like a poppy seed. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you can look at that mountain and tell it to throw itself in the heart of the sea and it will be done. How much is enough for salvation? That much. But do you know what a mustard seed does? It grows into the biggest tree on the landscape. And that's what faith is meant to do as well. Here's one. How does a Christian impart the need for a savior to non-Christians whose faith systems don't believe in sin, salvation, but instead on things like karma or ki or chi, if you call it that way, and the like? How does a Christian impart the need for a savior to non-Christians of a different world view? Contextually. There isn't a simple formula. There isn't a phrase or an aphorism to memorize and just repeat robotically to people. Tell them your story. Why is Jesus important to you? I can't answer that one. Only you can. Why have you come to follow his way? Why have you come to put stock in this? What are those personal things and experiences and reasons to you? Because I tell you, sharing your own story and how God has matrixed it is going to be far more impactful, powerful, but also genuine and good than any stock formula I can give you. My encouragement to you is this. Listen to what people have to say. Deal honestly with their objections and be ready to share the hope that you have. How about this? It seems the punishment to Adam and Eve is overly harsh and lacking in mercy and unconditional love. Even if Adam and Eve are just a metaphor, seems falling from grace forever is a bit harsh. Yeah, I know what you mean. It really does. It really does. I'll just uh, offer one piece of challenge to the end. Falling from grace forever. It's interesting to me because it seems to imply that Adam and Eve fell and God walked away. But that is the complete antithesis of what the entire storyline of the Bible is about. God did not walk away consigning them consigning them to falling forever. He came down in the midst of it with a plan of rescue, restoration, and salvation to correct even at the expense to himself what Adam and Eve threw away. If Jesus came down to earth for a day, what do you think he would do? Now, I assume when you ask this question, you're not talking about like the second coming or something like that, where he brings heaven and earth to meet and the judgment day opens. I think what you're assuming is like, man, I just kind of want to hang out there for a day. I'm not going to tell anyone, right? First, I'm convinced he probably wouldn't come to the United States. 
He'd probably be like Myanmar or sub-Saharan Africa or somewhere, and we wouldn't even know it because that seems to be his kind of style. But if he came for a day, what do I think he would do? Hang out with the IRS or go to a strip club. (laughs) How will you know God is with you? I don't know why this came to mind, but I'm like, hang out at the IRS or go to a strip club. How will you know God is with you? How do you know anything? I suspect tucked within is a hunger for certainty. Absolute ironclad certainty that's free of all doubt or other possibility. And I can't give that to you. I can't give you an ironclad argument that will stand up to any challenge or any wrestling that you want to bring to it. What I can tell you is this. Jesus has made some very specific and explicit promises. Things like, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples and I will be with you until the very end of the age. The question is this, are you willing to believe it? Are you willing to trust it even when it doesn't feel like it? Even when you're doubting it? Even when it's starting to get shaken around and you're like, it doesn't seem. Are you willing to trust him in those moments? And do you believe that when he makes a promise, it's sure and true? That's the only way I can answer that one. So, who does the Jewish faith think Jesus was? Just a good guy? Another prophet? A fictitious character who didn't really exist? And if they think he wasn't sent to save us, how do they think you get to live eternal life? One of the difficulties with answering this question is, what do you mean by the term Jewish faith? Because the Jewish faith is not monolithic. It is just as pocketed and variegated as the Christian faith is with different lines of belief, different traditions, and different perspectives on things. Also, the question has to be asked, the Jewish faith when? In the time of Jesus or as the Jewish faith is understood today? Are you already regretting that you ask the question? (laughs) Don't forget this. All of Jesus' early followers were Jews. They thought they were still of the Jewish faith. In fact, they were even called within the Jewish faith of his day, the Nazarene sect. And what is a sect? It's a pocket or group within a greater whole. They were viewed as being Jewish. The Christian faith never set out to be something different or better put, separate from the Jewish faith. It was always understood as the climax, the fulfillment, the continuation of all the Jewish faith was meant to be. Some have accepted that and some Jews to this day continue to do so. Some have rejected it. And from my perspective, in so doing, have rejected the very climax of all that God has been doing in their life. But pretty much top to bottom, except for maybe some of the radical fringe, all Jews today, all atheists today, all people today believe Jesus existed. 
There's more testimony to that than any other historic figure of antiquity. Many see him as a great prophet. Even within some of the ancient Jewish writings themselves, you'll see that even those who rejected him as Messiah, but others saw him as a heretic and one to be shunned and cast out and feared. I suspect you'll see a range today as well. When was hell created? And aren't there two sides of hell? Like Lazarus was on one side and Jesus was on the other during his resurrection. Can you explain these? I'm not really sure what you're getting at. I think I know what you're getting at in in number two, but let me deal with when the hell was created thing. It's kind of an interesting question because it depends how you look at hell. Really two different perspectives that you're going to see in the Bible on hell. One is a place. A place that God created to be a sort of supermax for fallen spirits or something like that. A place that was never intended for human habitation. And so it would seem that if this is a place God created, he created it somehow when the need arose in the beginning of time or the seven days of creation or, or maybe even before or something like that. All right? Another perspective on hell, though, is a bit different. It doesn't view hell so much as a place, but a distance. Meaning hell is not so much some prison house that God created over there at some piece of real estate, but hell is being separated from God. And so with that perspective, it could be argued That hell isn't so much a place that's created, but the absence of God in a place, which would, of course, vary at every time and space throughout creation. Now, the Bible talks of Moses confronting Pharaoh, whose sorcerers turned their, their staves into snakes. God, of course, does the same with Moses' staff, but... Uh, the fact that those sorcerers could do it means that those pagan gods, dark magics, really existed at some point. From the biblical perspective, you better believe it. On the issue of transgenderism, does God make the spirit of a person male or female? Or is it solely a trait of the body? Can a body become corrupted in the womb to be the opposite gender as the spirit, leaving many feeling like a man in a woman's body or vice versa. God did not create you. Let me say it again. God did not create you. He did not create your body. He did not create your soul. Forgive me for having to give my kindergarten answer, but the stork did not bring you. Your parents created you. It's called sex. They created your body. They created your soul. Your soul is not some eternally existent thing that echoes back to the time of God in eternity. You came on the scene at some point when your parents came together in a way you do not want to envision in your mind. Right? Which means that the corruptibility, the frailty, the weakness, and everything else 
that the human species propagates is going to affect the totality of who we are as well. God does not make the spirit of someone male or female. You are created by your parents. As Lutherans, we do not emphasize adult baptism. Why, why do we not ad- emphasize adult baptism more? I understand we believe we are saved by the word and the sacrament, by believing in being baptized, and I understand the concept that infants don't have the ability to themselves believe yet, so that leaves baptism. But wasn't everyone in the New Testament baptized as an adult, including Jesus himself? I do not remember seeing infant baptism anywhere in the Bible, and you're not going to. And you're not going to for this simple reason. It was a first-generation faith. When the apostles went witnessing, they didn't go witnessing to daycare centers. They went witnessing to adults. And adults would take that step forward and convert. But you will find in the New Testament echoes and vague references that often when one was baptized, their whole family was baptized as well which may or may not have included infants in those cases, but I think it's sifting it at gnats at that point. Why don't we emphasize adult baptism more? Man, I can't speak for Lutheranism worldwide. Every church has to speak for itself. But if we have underestimated or underemphasized it here in any way, let me correct it right now. If you are here and you are an adult and you have not been baptized, come to Christ and be baptized. It is not a reserved rite of passage for those under two years of age. Whether you are three months old or 99 years old, I believe that God wants you to be baptized in him to partake of what he does in that moment and to proclaim a faith of an immersed life in him. If you're here today, let me say it again. Be baptized. Come talk to me. How about more hymns in church? How about that? There are some fantastic ancient hymns and there are some really lousy ones. There are some fantastic modern pieces of worship and there are many really lousy ones. Our goal here at Fellowship of Faith is not to say old or new. I think the divide is stupid and I think it's an outdated argument. Let's celebrate and worship with 2,000 years of history and maybe even more if you count the Psalms. But I think what you're asking is, why don't we sing more music here like I had growing up in my church as a child? Well, I got one simple answer for you. We don't have an organ. (laughs) And even if we did, we don't have anyone that would know how to play it. And songs written in, and we do have a keyboard, and it sounds about as good as electronic drums, right? (laughs) Keyboard settings, organ settings on keyboards make God throw up. They just do. (laughs) We do 
what we're equipped to do. And if ancient hymns can be rearranged to modern instrumentation, we not only will do them, we have done them. But songs fit into genres and are written for various expressions. And many of those ancient hymns, ones that I love, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Jesus Christ is Risen Today, I Can Go On and On, are written as 4-4 S-A-T-B choral marches that just doesn't work with this kind of instrumentation. So if you do play a weird instrument like an organ or anything else, we'd love to tap you. We'd love to be able to express the 360-degree panoply of all that worship can be. But we can't do it without you because if we can't do it well, we just don't want to touch it. All right? How about this? What's the best way to read the Bible if you are trying to read it in its entirety? And is there a good summary book to help make sure you are interpreting it correctly? The best way to read it if you're reading it in entirety is just to start. People will paralyze themselves with finding the perfect scheme and it will leave them from ever jumping in. It's like people who want to work out or start eating right and they think they have to have it all figured out. Just step in. Just start reading it. And if you get bored out of your mind, mark where you left off and pick up somewhere else. We put a number of reading plans out here at Fellowship of Faith, and we've been doing this for three or four years. And it will take you through it in guided fashion. Come talk to me or send me an email if you want those. Can I just say this? Start with a New Testament, open to Matthew 1.1, start reading it straight through, one or two chapters a day. It'll take you five to ten minutes max. Don't try to understand everything. Just see if you can make it through. And then come talk to me. And is there a good summary book to help make sure you are interpreting it correctly? No. There isn't. It's too complex. It's too variegated. It's too section by section to be reduced to some 20-page pamphlet how to interpret the Bible. It's like saying, is there a good summary book of how to interpret the English language? to interpret literature. There's volumes. So my suggestion is this. When you're reading a book of the Bible and if you're struggling with it, pick up a commentary. Pick up a commentary and I can recommend a few to you. Pick one up and just start with interpreting a section rather than looking for some masterful unifying theory to interpret the whole. We're getting there. I am curious about the explanation of Holy Communion being simultaneously bread and wine and body and blood. Jesus said this is the new covenant, and we know his death on the cross was the new covenant. Wouldn't it make sense that the bread and wine that night was representative of his death on the cross and not actually his body and blood? Jesus spoke in metaphors all the time. I am, I am the bread of wine. Not quite, but I know where you're going. I am the vine. I am the gate. We know he physically wasn't any of these things. Would this be any different? Well, you know, you may be onto something, and many Christians do interpret it that way. They think it's just another metaphor of Jesus. And it's certainly possible. Going to the words of institution and looking when Jesus says, this is my body, and demanding that it has to be his body because of the clear language is about as goofy a saying as when he goes, I am the gate, that we think he swings on hinges. You know? So it comes down to how do you interpret most correctly what he was getting at? And the trajectory we found here 
has been mainly through Paul. Looking at how other people of Jesus' day wrestled with that exact same question and how did they interpret it. And when you come to the writings of Paul, it seems just way too intense in what he says to relegate it as simple metaphor. Others would disagree. I encourage you to get into the fray and read both sides and wrestle with that decision for yourself. A couple more here, I believe. The Bible says those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I love this question. How can I become a better son of the Lord? And how may I allow the Spirit to lead me? I love what Jesus says. If you love me, this is Jesus now, if you love me, obey my commands. And it's not because he's looking for some hoops for you to jump through in your life. It's because in his commands are tucked something that brings life and goodness. Seek to obey him. Examine yourself. And repent of those areas that are not in accord with his way. And remember that as you do that, repentance doesn't just mean, oh, I feel really sorry for about it. Please forgive me, God. It's turning your own life course and trajectory to his way. You're a son loved by him regardless. But if you want to be that better son, honor him, obey him, and devote yourself to him in that way. And ladies, remember that when God looks at you, he says, yeah, you're a son of God too. And in that, his spirit will lead. What does the Bible say about divorce and adultery? It says don't do it. It says don't do it because it is just a destructive, painful thing. Do everything in your power to fight against it, to avoid it, to run screaming from it. Because it only leads to a path of pain and misery. I know I am speaking to a congregation that statistically is probably 50% divorced. My own family has witnessed it as well. And you probably know better than anyone sitting here exactly what I'm talking about. The pain and the misery that that kind of thing brings. Now, I'm not talking about those of you who are getting your faces beat in. Let's contextualize this here this morning. But for the vast majority, do whatever it takes to not find and pursue either of these easy way out. And that covers the questions to date. If you texted in today, time just didn't allow. But if it's burning within your soul, I've got good news for you. Fellowship of Faith is a church where we encourage you to keep asking questions. You can ask me after today. I don't know who you are. 
If it's burning in your soul, come find me. And I'd love to share with you one-on-one and help guide the way. So I want to invite you to rise. Band's going to come forward. While they're getting ready, let's just take a moment ourselves. Let's pray. And ask God's presence as we go here today. Lord, thank you for these amazing people and the questions that are stirring in their soul. Move us to be people who never stop asking and exploring and waiting on you. May we be people who are moved to find answers or perspectives. Lord, you've said we can come to you with anything and everything. Whatever struggles, whatever questions, whatever, whatever it might be that lodges in, in our hearts here today. Breathe into it and speak into it and guide us. Guide us together along that way. In your name.